Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Each week we bring to life the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we reach part four of Death World by Harry Harrison. Our hero, Jason Dinelt, started his investigations into just what is wrong with this planet, and soon discovered that things weren't always this way. The planet was never particularly hospitable, but when the first settlers arrived, it was nowhere near as dangerous. So, what happened? The changes were too quick for evolution and too focused on killing humans to be accidental, but before he has time to report to Kirk Pyrrhus, the effective commander on the planet, tragedy happened. An attack on the city, and one of the casualties, as a direct result of Jason's inability to act in time, is Kirk Pyrrhus's son. Jason is now locked up and awaiting deportation from the planet. How will he get out of this one? So, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part four of Death World by Harry Harrison. Chapter 14 Jason spent one depressed day lying on his bunk counting rivets, forcing himself to accept defeat. Kirk's order that he was not to leave the sealed building tied his hands completely. He felt himself close to the answer, but he was never going to get it. One day of defeat was all that he could take. Kirk's attitude was completely emotional, untempered by the slightest touch of logic. This fact kept driving home until Jason could no longer ignore it. Emotional reasoning was something he had learned to mistrust early in life. He couldn't agree with Kirk in the slightest, which meant he had to utilise the ten remaining days to solve the problem. If it meant disobeying Kirk, it would still have to be done. He grabbed up his noteplate with a new enthusiasm. His first sources of information had been used up, but there must be others. Chewing the scriber and needling his brain, he slowly built up a list of other possibilities. Any idea, no matter how wild, was put down. When the plate was filled, he wiped the long shots and impossibles, such as consulting off-world historical records. This was a Piran problem, and had to be settled on this planet, or not at all. The list worked down to two probables, either old records, notebooks or diaries that individual Pyrrhans might have in their possession, or verbal histories that had been passed down the generations by word of mouth. The first choice seemed to be the most probable, and he acted on it at once. After a careful check of his medikit and gun, he went to see Brocco. "'What's new and deadly in the world since I left?' he asked. Brocco glared at him. "'You can't go out.' Kirk has forbidden it. Did he put you in charge of guarding me to see if I obeyed? Jason's voice was quiet and cold. Brucco rubbed his jaw and frowned in thought. Finally, he just shrugged. No, I'm not guarding you, nor do I want the job. As far as I know, this is between you and Kirk and it can stay that way. Leave whenever you want and get yourself killed quietly someplace so there will be an end to the trouble you cause once and for all. I love you too. Jason said. Now, brief me on the wildlife. The only new mutation that routine precautions wouldn't take care of was a slate-coloured lizard that spit a fast nerve poison with deadly accuracy. Death took place in seconds if the saliva touched any bare skin. The lizards had to be looked out for and shot before they came within range. An hour of lizard blasting in a training chamber made him proficient in the exact procedure. 
Jason left the SEAL buildings quietly, and no one saw him go. He followed the map to the nearest barracks, shuffling tiredly through the dusty streets. It was a hot, quiet afternoon, broken only by rumblings from the distance and the occasional crack of his gun. It was cool inside the thick-walled barrack buildings, and he collapsed onto a bench until the sweat dried and his heart stopped pounding. Then he went to the nearest recreation room to start his search. Before it began, it was finished. None of the Pyrrhans kept old artefacts of any kind, and thought the whole idea was very funny. After the twentieth negative answer, Jason was ready to admit defeat in this line of investigation. There was as much chance of meeting a Pyrrhan with an old document as finding a bundle of grandfather's letters in a soldier's kit bag. This left a single possibility. Verbal histories. Again, Jason questioned with the same lack of results. The fun had worn off of the game for the Pyrrhans, and they were beginning to growl. Jason stopped while he was still in one piece. The commissary served him a meal that tasted like plastic paste and wood pulp. He ate it quickly, then sat brooding over the empty tray, hating to admit to another dead end. Who could supply him with answers? All of the people he had talked to were so young, they had no interest or patience for storytelling. This was an old folks' hobby, and there were no oldsters on Pyrrhus. With one exception that he knew of, the librarian Polly. It was a possibility. A man who worked with records and books might have an interest in some of the older ones. He might even remember reading volumes now destroyed. A very slim lead indeed, but one that had to be pursued. Walking to the library almost killed Jason. The torrential rains made the footing bad, and in the dim light it was hard to see what was coming. A snapper came in close enough to take a chunk of flesh before he could blast it. The antitoxin made him dizzy, and he lost some blood before he could get the wound dressed. He reached the library, exhausted and angry. Polly was working on the guts of one of the catalogue machines. He didn't stop until Jason had tapped him on the shoulder. Switching on his hearing aid, the Pyrrhon stood quietly, crippled and bent, waiting for Jason to talk. "'Have you any old papers or letters that you have kept for your personal use?' A shake of the head. No. "'What about stories, you know, about great things that have happened in the past that someone might have told you when you were young?' Negative. Results... Negative. Every question was answered by a shake of Polly's head, and very soon the old man grew irritated and pointed to the work he hadn't finished. Yes, I know you have work to do, Jason said, but this is important. Polly shook his head an angry no, and reached to turn off his hearing aid. Jason groped for a question that might get a more positive answer. There was something tugging at his mind, a word he had heard and made a note of to be investigated later, something that Kirk had said. That's it. It was right there, on the tip of his tongue. J just a second, Polly, just one more question. What is a grubber? Have you ever seen one, or know what they do, or where they can be found? The words were cut off as Polly whirled and lashed the back of his good arm into Jason's face. Though the man was aged and crippled, the blow almost fractured Jason's jaw, sending him sliding across the floor. Through a daze, he saw Polly hobbling towards him, making thick, bubbling noises in his ruined throat, what remained of his face twisted and working with anger. 
Moving as fast as he could with the high-G foot-slapping shuffle, Jason headed for the sealed door. He was no match for any Pyrrhon in hand-to-hand combat, young and small or old and crippled. The door thunked open as he went through and barely closed in Polly's face. Outside, the rain had turned to snow, and Jason trudged wearily through the slush, rubbing his sore jaw and turning over the only fact he had. Grubber was a key. But to what? And who did he dare ask for more information? Kirk was the man he had talked to best, but not any more. That left only Meta as a possible source. He wanted to see her at once, but sudden exhaustion swept through him. It took all of his strength to stumble back to the school buildings. In the morning, he ate and left early. There was only a week left. It was impossible to hurry, and he cursed as he dragged his double-weight body to the assignment centre. Meta was on night perimeter duty and should be back to her quarters soon. He shuffled over there and was lying on her bunk when she came in. Get out, she said in a flat voice, or do I throw you out? Patience, please, he said as he sat up, just resting here till you came back. I have a single question, and if you will answer it for me, I'll go and stop bothering you. What is it? she asked, tapping her foot with impatience, but there was also a touch of curiosity in her voice. Jason thought carefully before he spoke. Now, please don't shoot me. You know I'm an off-worlder with a big mouth and you've heard me say some awful things without taking a shot at me. Now, I have another one. Will you please show your superiority to the other people of the galaxy by holding your temper and not reducing me to component atoms? His only answer was a tap of the foot, so he took a deep breath and plunged in. What is a grubber. For a long moment she was quiet, unmoving. Then she curled her lips back in disgust. You find the most repulsive topics. That may be so, he said, but it still doesn't answer my question. It's, well, the sort of thing people just don't talk about. I do, he assured her. Well, I don't. It's the most disgusting thing in the world, and that's all I'm going to say. Talk to Cranon, but not to me. She had him by the arm while she talked, and he was half-dragged to the hall. The door slammed behind him, and he muttered, Lady Wrestler, under his breath. His anger ebbed away as he realised that she had given him a clue in spite of herself. Next step, find out who or what Cranon was. Assignment Centre listed a man named Cranon and gave his shift number and work location. It was close by, and Jason walked there. A large, cubicle and windowless building with a single word, food, next to each of the sealed entrances. The small entrance he went through was a series of automatic chambers that cycled him through ultrasonics, ultraviolet, antibio spray, rotating brushes and three final rinses. He was finally admitted damper but much cleaner to the central area. Men and robots were stacking crates, and he asked one of the men for Cranon. The man looked him up and down coldly and spat on his shoes before answering. Cranon worked in a large storage bay by himself. He was a stocky man in patched coveralls whose only expression was one of intense gloom. When Jason came in, he stopped hauling bales and sat down on the nearest one. The lines of unhappiness were cut into his face and seemed to grow deeper while Jason explained what he was after. All the talk of ancient history on Pyrrhus bored him as well, and he yawned openly. When Jason finished, 
he yawned again and didn't even bother to answer him. Jason waited a moment, then asked him, I said, do you have any old books, papers, records, or that sort of thing? You sure picked the wrong guy to bother, Offworlder, was his only answer. After talking to me, you're going to have nothing but trouble. Why is that? Jason asked. Why? For the first time he was animated with something besides grief. I'll tell you why. I made one mistake, just one, and I'd get a life sentence. For life. How would you like that? Just me alone, being by myself all the time, even taking orders from the grubbers. Jason controlled himself, keeping the elation out of his voice. Grubbers? What are grubbers? The enormity of the question stopped Cranon. It seemed impossible that there could be a man alive who had never heard of grubbers. Happiness lifted some of the gloom from his face as he realised that he had a captive audience who had listened to his troubles. Grubbers are traitors, that's what they are. Traitors to the human race and they ought to be wiped out, living in the jungle. The things they do with animals. You mean they're people, Pyrrhans, like yourself, Jason broke in. Not like me, mister. Don't make that mistake again if you want to go on living. Maybe I dozed off on guard once so I got stuck with this job. That doesn't mean I like it, or like them. They stink, really stink. And if it wasn't for the food we get from them, they'd be all dead tomorrow. That's the kind of killing job I could really put my heart into. If they supply you with food, you must give them something in return. Trade goods, speeds, knives, the usual things. Supply sends them over in cartons and I take care of the delivery. How? Jason asked. My armoured truck to the delivery site. Then I go back later to pick up the food they've left in exchange. Can I go with you on the next delivery? Cranon frowned over the idea for a minute. Yeah, I suppose it's all right if you're stupid enough to come. You can help me load. They're between harvest now, so the next trip won't be for eight days. But that's after the ship leaves. It'll be too late. Can't you go earlier? Don't tell me your troubles, mister, Cranon grumbled, climbing to his feet. That's when I go, and the date's not changing for you. Jason realised he had got as much out of the man as it was possible for one session. He started for the door, then turned... One thing, he asked, just what do these savages, the grubbers, look like? How do I know? Cranon snapped. I trade with them. I don't make love to them. If I ever saw one, I'd shoot him down on the spot. He flexed his fingers and his gun jumped in and out of his hand as he said it. Jason quietly let himself out. Lying on his bunk, resting his gravity-weary body, he searched for a way to get Cranon to change the delivery date. His millions of credits were worthless on this world without currency. If the man couldn't be convinced, he had to be bribed. With what? Jason's eyes touched the locker where his off-world clothing still hung, and he had an idea. It was morning before he could return to the food warehouse, and one day closer to his deadline. Cranon didn't bother to look up from his work when Jason came in. Do you want this? Jason asked, handing the outcast a flat gold case inset with a single large diamond. Cranon grunted and turned it over in his hands. A toy, he said. What is it good for? Well, when you press this button, you get a light. A flame appeared through a hole in the top. Cranon started to hand it back. What do I need a little fire for? Here, keep it. 
Wait a second, Jason said. That's not all it does. When you press the jewel in the centre, one of these comes out. A black pellet the size of his fingernail dropped into his palm. A grenade made of solid ulranite. Just squeeze it hard and throw. Three seconds later, it explodes with enough force to blast open this building. This time, Crannon almost smiled as he reached for the case. Destructive and death-dealing weapons are like candy to a Pyrrhon. While he looked at it, Jason made his offer. The case and bombs are yours, if you move the date of your next delivery up to tomorrow and let me go with you. Be here at 0500, Crannon said. We leave early. Chapter 15 The truck rumbled up to the perimeter gate and stopped. Crannon waved to the guards through the front window, then closed a metal shield over it. When the gate swung open, the truck, really a giant armoured tank, ground slowly forward. There was a second gate beyond the first, and that did not open until the interior one was closed. Jason looked through a second driver's periscope as the outer gate lifted. Automatic flamethrowers flared through the opening, cutting off only when the truck reached them. A scorched area ringed the gate. Beyond that, the jungle began. Unconsciously, Jason shrank back into his seat. All the plants and animals he had only seen specimens of existed here in profusion. Thorn-ringed branches and vines laced themselves into a solid mat through which the wildlife swarmed. A fury of sound hurled at them. Thuds and scratchings rang on the armour. Crannon laughed and closed the switch that electrified the outer grid. The scratchings died away as the beasts completed the circuit to the grounded hull. It was slow speed, low gear work tearing through the jungle. Crannon had his face buried in the periscope mask and silently fought the controls. With each mile, the going seemed to get better until he finally swung up the periscope and opened the window armour. The jungle was still thick and deadly, but nothing like the area immediately around the perimeter. It appeared as if most of the lethal powers of Pyrrhus were concentrated in the single area around the settlement. Why? Jason asked himself, why this intense and planetary hatred? The motors died and Crannon stood up, stretching. We're here, he said. Let's unload. There was bare rock around the truck, a rounded hillock that projected from the jungle, too smooth and steep for vegetation to get a hold. Crannon opened the cargo hatches and they pushed out the boxes and crates. When they finished, Jason slumped down, exhausted, onto the pile. Get back in. We're leaving. Crannon said. You are. I'm staying right here. Crannon looked at him coldly. Get in the truck, or I'll kill you. No one stays out here. For one thing, you couldn't live an hour alone. But worse than that, the grubbers would get you. Kill you at once, of course, but that's not important. But you have equipment that we can't allow into their hands. You want to see a grubber with a gun? While the Pyrrhon talked, Jason's thoughts had rushed ahead. He hoped that Crannon was as thick of head as he was fast of reflex. Jason looked at the trees, let his gaze move up through the thick branches. Though Crannon was still talking, he was automatically aware of Jason's attention. When Jason's eyes widened and his gun jumped into his hand, Crannon's own gun appeared and he turned in the same direction. There! In the top! Jason shouted, and fired into the tangle of branches. Crannon fired too. As soon as he did... Jason hurled himself backwards, curled into a ball, rolling down the inclined rock. 
The shots had covered the sounds of his movements, and before Cranon could turn back, the gravity had dragged him down the rock into the thick foliage. Crashing branches slapped at him but slowed his fall. When he stopped moving, he was lost in the jungle. Cranon's shots came too late to hit him. Lying there, tired and bruised, Jason heard the Piran cursing him out. He stamped around on the rock, fired a few shots, but knew better than to enter the trees. Finally, he gave up and went back to the truck. The motor gunned into life, and the treads clanked and scraped down the rock and back into the jungle. There were muted rumblings and crashes that slowly died away. Then Jason was alone. Up until that instant, he hadn't realised quite how alone he would be. Surrounded by nothing but death, the truck already vanished from sight. He had to force down an overwhelming desire to run after it. What was done was done. This was a long chance to take, but it was the only way to contact the grubbers. They were savages, but still they had come from human stock, and they hadn't sunk so low as to stop the barter with the civilised Pyrrhons. He had to contact them, befriend them, find out how they had managed to live safely on this madhouse world. If there had been another way to lick the problem, he would have taken it. He didn't relish the role of martyred hero, but Kirk and his deadline had forced his hand. The contact had to be made fast, and this was the only way. There was no telling where the savages were, or how soon they would arrive. If the woods weren't too lethal, he could hide there, pick his time to approach them. If they found him among the supplies, they might skewer him on the spot with a typical Piran reflex. Walking warily, he approached the line of trees. Something had moved on a branch, but vanished as he came near. None of the plants near the thick-trunked tree looked poisonous, so he slipped behind it. There was nothing deadly in sight, and it surprised him. He let his body relax a bit, leaning against the rough bark. Something soft and choking fell over his head. His body was seized in a steel grip. The more he struggled, the tighter it held him until the blood thundered in his ears and his lungs screamed for air. Only when he grew limp did the pressure let up. His first panic ebbed a little when he realised that it wasn't an animal that attacked him. He knew nothing about the grubbers, but they were human, so he still had a chance. His arms and legs were tied. The power holster ripped from his arm. He felt strangely naked without it. The powerful hands grabbed him again, and he was hurled into the air to fall face down across something warm and soft. Fear pressed in again. It was a large animal of some kind, and all Piran animals were deadly. When the animal moved off, carrying him, panic was replaced by a feeling of mounting elation. The grubbers had managed to work out a truce of some kind with at least one form of animal life. He had to find out how. If he could get that secret and get it back to the city, it would justify all his work and pain. It might even justify Welf's death if the age-old war could be slowed or stopped. Jason's tightly bound limbs hurt terribly at first, but grew numb with the circulation cut off. The jolting ride continued endlessly. He had no way of measuring the time. A rainfall soaked him, and he felt his clothes steaming as the sun came out. The ride was finally over. He was pulled from the animal's back and dumped down. His arms dropped free as someone loosed the bindings. The returning circulation soaked him in pain as he lay there, struggling to move. When his hands finally obeyed him, he lifted them to his face and stripped away the covering, a sack of thick fur. Light blinded him as he sucked in breath after breath of clean air. 
blinking against the glare, he looked around. He was lying on a floor of crude planking, the setting sun shining into his eyes through the doorless entrance of the building. There was a ploughed field outside, stretching down the curve of hill to the edge of the jungle. It was too dark to see much inside the hut. Something blocked the light of the doorway, a tall, animal-like figure. On second look, Jason realised it was a man, with long hair and a thick beard. He was dressed in furs, even his legs were wrapped in fur leggings. His eyes were fixed on his captive, while one hand fondled an axe that hung from his waist. "'Who are you? What do you want?' the bearded man asked suddenly. Jason picked his words slowly, wondering if this savage shared the same hair-trigger temper as the city-dwellers. "'My name is Jason. I come in peace.' I want to be your friend. Lies, the man grunted, and pulled the axe from his belt. Junkman tricks. I saw you hide. Wait to kill me. Kill you first. He tested the edge of the blade with a horny thumb and raised it. Wait, Jason said desperately. You don't understand. The axe swung down. I'm from off-world, and... A solid thunk shook him as the axe buried itself in the wood next to his head. The last instant the man had twitched it aside. He grabbed the front of Jason's clothes and pulled him up until their faces touched. "'It's true!' he shouted. "'You're from off-world!' His hand opened and Jason dropped back before he could answer. The savage jumped over him towards the dim rear of the hut. "'Ress must know of this,' he said, as he fumbled with something on the wall. Light sprang out. All Jason could do was stare. The hairy, fur-covered savage was operating a communicator. The calloused, dirt-encrusted fingers deftly snapped open the circuits and dialed a number. Chapter 16 It made no sense. Jason tried to reconcile the modern machine with the barbarian and couldn't. Who was he calling? The existence of one communicator meant that there was at least another. Was Ress a person or a thing? With a mental effort, he grabbed hold of his thoughts and braked them to a stop. There was something new here, factors he hadn't counted on. He kept reassuring himself there was an explanation for everything, once you had your facts straight. Jason closed his eyes, shutting out the glaring rays of the sun where it cut through the treetops and reconsidered his facts. They separated evenly into two classes, those he had observed for himself and those he had learned from the city dwellers. This last class of facts he would hold to see if they fitted with what he learned. There was a good chance that most or all of them would prove false. Get up, the voice jarred into his thoughts. We're leaving. His legs were still numb and hardly usable. The bearded man snorted in disgust and hauled him to his feet, propping him against the outer wall. Jason clutched the knobby bark of the logs when he was left alone. He looked around, soaking up impressions. It was the first time he had been on a farm since he had run away from home. A different world with a different ecology, but the similarity was apparent enough to him. A new-sown field stretched down the hill in front of the shack, ploughed by a good farmer. Even well-cast furrows that followed the contour of the slope. Another, larger log building was next to this one, probably a barn. There was a snuffling sound behind him, and Jason turned quickly and froze. His hand called for the missing gun, and his finger tightened down on a trigger that wasn't there. 
It had come out of the jungle and padded up quietly behind him. It had six thick legs with clawed feet that dug into the ground. The two-metre-long body was covered with matted yellow and black fur, all except the skull and shoulders. These were covered with overlapping horny plates. Jason could see all this because the beast was that close. He waited to die. The mouth opened, a frog-like division of the hairless skull revealing double rows of jagged teeth. Here, Fido, the bearded man said, coming up behind Jason and snapping his fingers at the same time. The thing bounded forward, brushing past the dazed Jason, and rubbed his head against the man's leg. Nice doggy, the man said, his fingers scratching under the edge of the carapace where it joined the flesh. The bearded man had brought two of the riding animals out of the barn, saddled and bridled. Jason barely noticed the details of smooth skin and long legs as he swung up on one. His feet were quickly lashed to the stirrups. When they started, the skull-headed beast followed them. "'Nice, doggy,' Jason said, and for no reason started to laugh. The bearded man turned and scowled at him until he was quiet. By the time they entered the jungle, it was dark. It was impossible to see under the thick foliage, and they used no lights. The animals seemed to know the way. There were scraping noises and shrill calls from the jungle around them, and it didn't bother Jason too much. Perhaps the automatic manner in which the other man undertook the journey reassured him, or the presence of the dog that he felt rather than saw. The trip was a long one, but not too uncomfortable. The regular motion of the animal and his fatigue overcame Jason, and he dozed into a fitful sleep, waking with a start each time he slumped forward. In the end, he slept sitting up in the saddle. Hours passed this way until he opened his eyes and saw a square of light before them. The trip was over. His legs were stiff and galled with saddle sores. After his feet were untied, getting down was an effort and he almost fell. A door opened and Jason went in. It took his eyes some moments to get used to the light, until he could make out the form of a man on the bed before him. Come over here and sit down. The voice was full and strong, accustomed to command. The body was that of an invalid. A blanket covered him to the waist, above that the flesh was sickly white, spotted with red nodules and hung loosely over the bones. There seemed to be nothing left of the man except skin and skeleton. Not very nice, the man on the bed said, but I've grown used to it. His tone changed abruptly. Naxa said you were from off-world, is that true? Jason nodded yes, and his answer stirred the living skeleton to life. The head lifted from the pillow, and the red-rimmed eyes sought his with a desperate intensity. My name is Ress, and I'm a grubber. Will you help me? Jason wondered at the intensity of Ress's question, all out of proportion to the simple content of its meaning. Yet he could see no reason to give anything other than the first and obvious answer that sprang to his lips— of course I'll help you, in whatever way I can, as long as it involves no injury to anyone else. What do you want? The sick man's head had fallen back limply, exhausted, as Jason talked, but the fire still burned in the eyes. Feel assured, I want to injure no others, Ress said. Quite the opposite. As you can see, I am suffering from a disease that our remedies will not stop. Within a few more days, I will be dead. Now, I have seen... The city people, using a device, they press it over a wound or an animal bite. Do you have one of those machines? That sounds like a description of the medikit, 
Jason touched the button at his waist that dropped the medikit into his hand. I have mine here. It analyzes and treats most. Would you use it on me? Ress broke in, his voice suddenly urgent. I'm sorry, Jason said. I should have realized. He stepped forward and pressed the machine over one of the inflamed areas on Ress's chest. The operation light came on, and the thin shaft of the analyzer probe slid down. When it withdrew, the device hummed, then clicked three times as three separate hypodermic needles lanced into the skin. Then the light went out. Is that all? Rez asked as he watched Jason stow the medikit back in his belt. Jason nodded, then looked up and noticed the wet marks of tears on the sick man's face. Rez became aware at the same time and brushed at them angrily. When a man is sick, he growled, the body and all its senses become traitor. I don't think I've cried since I was a child, but you must realise it's not myself I'm crying for. It's the untold thousands of my people who have died for lack of that little device you treat so casually. Surely you have medicines, doctors of your own. Herb doctors and witch doctors, Ress said, consigning them all to oblivion with a chop of his hand. The few hard-working and honest men are hampered by the fact that the faith healers can usually cure better than their strongest potion. The talking had tired Ress. He stopped suddenly and closed his eyes. On his chest, the inflamed areas were already losing their angry colour as the injections took effect. Jason glanced around the room, looking for clues to the mystery of these people. Floor and walls were made of wood lengths fitted together, free of paint or decoration. They looked simple and crude, fit only for the savages he had expected to meet. Or were they crude? The wood had a sweeping, flame-like grain. When he bent close, he saw that wax had been rubbed over the wood to bring out this pattern. Was this the act of savages, or of artistic men seeking to make the most of simple materials? The final effect was far superior to the drab paint and riveted steel rooms of the city-dwelling Pyrrhons. Wasn't it true that both ends of the artistic scale were dominated by simplicity? The untutored Aborigine made a simple expression of a clear idea and created beauty. At the other extreme, the sophisticated critic rejected over-elaboration and decoration and sought the truthful clarity of uncluttered art. At which end of the scale was he looking now? These men were savages, he had been told that. They dressed in furs and spoke a slurred and broken language, at least Naxa did. Ress admitted he preferred faith healers to doctors. But if all this were true, where did the communicator fit into the picture? Or the glowing ceiling that illuminated the room with a soft light? Ress opened his eyes and stared at Jason as if seeing him for the first time. Who are you? he asked. What are you doing here? There was a cold menace in his words, and Jason understood why. The city Pyrrhons hated the grubbers, and without a doubt the feeling was mutual. Naxa's axe had proved that. Naxa had entered silently while they talked, and stood with his fingers touching the haft of this same axe. Jason knew his life was still in jeopardy until he gave an answer that satisfied these men. He couldn't tell the truth. If they once suspected he was spying among them to aid the city people, it would be the end. Nevertheless, he had to be free to talk about the survival problem. The answer hit him as soon as he had stated the problem. All this had only taken an instant to consider as he turned back to face the invalid and he answered at once, trying to keep his voice normal and unconcerned. I'm Jason Denelt, an ecologist. So you see, I have the best reasons in the universe for visiting this planet. 
What is an ecologist? Ress broke in. There was nothing in his voice to indicate whether he meant the question seriously or as a trap. All traces of the ease of their earlier conversation were gone. His voice had the deadliness of a stingwing's poison. Jason chose his words carefully. Simply stated, it is that branch of biology that considers the relations between organisms and their environment, how climactic and other factors affect the life forms, and how the life forms in turn affect each other and the environment. That much Jason knew was true, but he really knew very little more about the subject, so he moved on quickly. I heard reports of this planet, and finally came here to study it firsthand. I did what work I could in the shelter of the city, but it wasn't enough. The people there think I'm crazy, but they finally agreed to let me take a trip out here. What arrangements have been made for your return? Naxa snapped. None. Jason told him. They seemed quite sure that I would be killed instantly, and had no hope of me coming back. In fact, they refused to let me go, and I had to break away. This answer seemed to satisfy Ress, and his face cracked into a mirthless smile. They would think that, those junkmen. Can't move a metre outside their own walls without an armour-plated machine as big as a barn. What do they tell you about us? Again, Jason knew a lot depended on his answer. This time he thought carefully before speaking. Well, perhaps I'll get that axe in the back of my neck for saying this, but I have to be honest. You must know what they think. They told me you were filthy and ignorant savages who smelled. And you, well, had curious customs you practised with the animals. In exchange for food, they traded you beads and knives. Both Pirans broke into a convulsion of laughter at this. Ress stopped soon from weakness, but Naxa laughed himself into a coughing fit and had to splash water over his head from a gourd jug. That, I believe, well enough, Ress said. It sounds like the stupidity they would talk. Those people know nothing of the world they live in. I hope the rest of what you said is true, but even if it is not, you are welcome here. You are from off-world, that I know. No junk man would have lifted a finger to save my life. You are the first off-worlder my people have ever known, and for that, you are doubly welcome. We will help you in any way we can. My arm is your arm. These last words had a ritual sound to them, and when Jason repeated them, Naxa nodded at the correctness of this. At the same time, Jason felt that they were more than empty ritual. Interdependence meant survival on Pyrrhus, and he knew that these people stood together to the death against the mortal dangers around them. He hoped the ritual would include him in that protective sphere. That is enough for tonight, Ress said. The spotted sickness had weakened me and your medicine has turned me to jelly. You will stay here, Jason. There is a blanket, but no bed, at least for now. Enthusiasm had carried Jason this far, making him forget the 2G exertions of the long day. Now fatigue hit him in a physical blow. He had dim memories of refusing food and rolling in the blanket on the floor, and after that, oblivion. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to the fourth part of Death World by Harry Harrison. If you want access to more classic science fiction and fantasy stories, or if you just want to show your support for The Well Told Tale, please consider visiting The Well Told Tale Patreon page at patreon.com slash Tale. There's also a link in the description. 
Please join me next week as we pick up Jason Denault's story once more as we hurtle towards Death World's explosive finale. I hope you can join me.